I am Sumit Gupta and this is Choosing Leadership, a podcast for high performers with big dreams at work and life. This is a podcast for people who know deep inside that there is more. Have you achieved a great deal of success, but on the inside you still feel empty and like an imposter? Do other people see you as a strong leader? And you wonder why it still feels so lonely and suffocating. The aim of this podcast is not to provide you more content, but instead shift the context under which you operate. I dare to speak to the tremendous power which you already have rather than what you believe are your strengths and limitations. This podcast is called Choosing Leadership because that is what leadership is, a choice. And this is the Leadership Journey series. I am interviewing leaders with an interesting story to learn how they got where they are today. We all have a lot to learn from each other's stories of where we started, where we are now and our successes and struggles on the way. With this series of interviews, my attempt is to give leaders an opportunity to share their stories and for all of us to learn from their generous sharing. Stuart is the creator of Impact Economics, which is now being scaled across the world. He is a global leader in impact investing, impact entrepreneurship, and profit for purpose. I found this statement from him quite inspiring. What is in our heads makes us marginally dangerous to the status quo. But what is in our hearts makes us a global force to be reckoned with. He advises governments, corporations, business families, community leaders, and foundations on how to embed profit and purpose strategies into their business and their personal and private lives. What I found fascinating in Stuart's story is how he reflects on his childhood and credits his mother for everything he has done and achieved. He shares a simple story of his mother teaching him to color outside the lines and how that lesson to be brave and think outside of the box has stayed with him in all his endeavors. So Stuart, can you share a little bit about your journey and what got you where you are today? And if if I can like have you think uh, about a few events or a few things which happened along the way, how would you answer that? I'd have to start by saying that ever since I've been a teenager, I have been an environmental conservationist. And for the earliest stages of my life, I really believe that if there was no planet, there would be no people. And therefore I naively at that stage didn't really care too much about people. I cared more about the planet. And in the late mid to late eighties, we were blessed enough to find someone who we knew quite well. I say we, my colleague and I, and we were in our very early twenties. We found a benefactor who supported some fairly large environmental conservation projects that we felt were imperatives. And those ended up a long time later found uh, forming the basis of an organization called the European Nature Trust. So there I was thinking I was doing a lot of great work, but that, but the same benefactor sat us down and said, look, you really need to find a way to impact people at the same time as you're impacting the environment. And we didn't know how to do that. That really was not our forte. 
and so we went to the library. Of course, there was no internet back then to try and understand what, you know, being sustainable really meant for, for people. You soon found yourself working in corporate finance. Can you share a little bit about how did you land there? And so I, I did my best there in the eighties to try and cobble together reports that I had found. And I came across amazing people like Hazel Henderson and Susan Davis and others and Wayne Silver, and then more latterly, Sir Ronald Cohen, that was in the nineties though. So that was really my sort of entree into that. Now, working in corporate finance, you get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And in 1989, the firm I was working for had been retained by an automotive parts company near Birmingham in England mm -hmm. and, and retained to sell it. And so they did what you normally do, put together, you know, a book and held an auction and came up with a buyer that was paying an amount back then that was, uh, substantial and certainly would have meant that the family that owned, it was owned by a single family, that business generations of that family would not have to be concerned. And the, it, the company was located just outside of, uh, Birmingham in the Midlands and it employed about 1500 people. And so it, it had a very large impact on that local economy, that community just outside Birmingham. And we were working through getting the deal done and a consulting firm had gone into the company and met with the owners and showed them that if they actually didn't sell their company now and that they outsourced the vast majority of the work and laid off 800 people that they could probably increase the sale price by about 25%. Yeah. And I remember sitting there thinking, there's no way they'll do that. There's no way that they'll fire over half of their employees who had helped them build this, which would have an incredibly negative effect on their community for 25% extra, which, which was a lot admittedly when the amount they were getting was good for generations. And they did it. Stunned. That is quite a story. Can you also share how did you land it up in the U.S. from there? Now, at that time, the company I was working for got sold to an American organization, and I was part of that transition. Uh, but I was still very young. I was still in my 20s. And I didn't really like the organization that acquired it. And I had covered some clients for the firm in the U S and I was visiting them then talking, you know, through the transition and what would happen, et cetera. And they challenged me. They said, well, if you don't like it, why don't you come to America and open your own company? Now, if I'd been older and married with children, I, there's probably no way I would have done that. But. I was young and I was single at the time and I thought, what the hell, if I'm going to, if I'm going to do something like that, now would be the time to do it. And so that's what I did. And in 1991, I, I came to America and I opened a company, ironically enough, called SRI, it's called Strategic Research Institute. 
which was a, ended up being a huge success and being sold in 2006. It was based in New York city. And, and that gave me a platform with some research associates to further my immersion in this socially responsible investing mm -hmm. sort of world, which again, was still very much at its infancy. And I met an incredible woman who today lives in, um, Ecuador near Vilcabamba and her name was Susan Davis. And Susan was literally one of the pioneers of SRI. And together we created in 1993, what, what I think was the first real platform uh, called making a profit while making a difference. And because my company was growing and it, it was becoming a global business, I, I had, I was blessed enough to have access to global heads of state. Certainly CEOs of some of the world's largest companies and owners and managers, of the world's largest asset companies. And so it, 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 it wasn't a heavy lift to actually get some time with those people and, and talk to them about this idea, <clears throat> this platform, which really, although it looked complex, it was quite simple. There were really two goals. The first one was make as much money as you can. Nobody really cares. Just. Do not do it at the expense of any segment of humanity or the environment. Then once you check that box, now is make, now make as much money as you can. Nobody really cares, but do it by deliberately driving positive impact to segments of humanity or the environment. Mm. And those two statements sound similar, but they're actually light years apart. Okay. So. We did that and I'm not ashamed to say that we certainly didn't get the traction that we would have liked to have got. I mean, I had, you know, many, many meetings and they were all very nice and people were all very personable and I drank lots of cups of tea, but I was often shown the door before I was able to achieve what I went there for. And I think it was because at that stage, people really associated doing good with the not-for-profit industry as opposed to commerce and business, mm -hmm. but we didn't quit. And so if you can't do something from the top down, your alternative is to try it from the bottom up. And so we started finding young people and challenging them and funding them to come up with innovations that would for profit, by the way, that would solve socioeconomic environmental problems. And what we realized was that the sort of change maker, not for profit industry at that stage had been around for about 50 years in the United States, maybe a tad longer, maybe 60. And then when you correlated that to the fact that Americans in general are very philanthropic minded, just give you an example in 2018, $440 billion was donated by Americans to not for profits. So all this money was flowing into that industry. And nothing was happening. I mean, that the ubiquitous socioeconomic environmental problems that, that we see were getting worse and continually getting worse. Perfect. And so we, we started doing a lot of research into that and we discovered that business and economics are actually not the problems. They're the only solutions. Now, of course they needed to be edited. Capitalism needed to be edited, but that's really when I started this uh, idea of, well, could you actually build a different form of community centric economics where business and economics and, and the best of capitalism are carried forward, leaving the worst behind us for the betterment of society. 
we started to make a little bit of progress on that. And of course, being based in New York City, we, like everyone else, were devastated by the events of 9-11. And so that put everything on hold because I was then challenged to literally steward a business that was 100% dependent on people's ability or willingness to travel, both of which were taken away, and quite rightly so. And that really took us into the first quarter of 2002, wherein we were able to pick up the baton again and start the work again. And by 2006, I feel that we really had a good sense of what needed to be done. And that's when the company was sold. Mm-hmm. I needed to work for the acquirer for a year and a half. It took me into mid 2007. But once that was done, I was then blessed with time, obviously, which is really important and capital to pursue this dream at that stage, it would become that, right? Of how do we really use business and economics for the good that it has? Now, one of the reasons that I was so focused on this is in, in America, for example, and you can extrapolate this out globally, in America, there's currently 16 million active corporations mm-hmm. that employ 130 million people. So they touch every single family in the United States. They touch every community in the United States. Of course, they touch the environment. And from that standpoint, if those 16 million people decide to adopt leadership and management through the lens of profit for purpose, the impact that would have would far outweigh the impact of the United Nations or impact investing. Not that those are not important, they are but you can't compare the impact that, that wouldn't be had. So we merrily wandered, you know, into sort of institutions that you would know and large global institutions and philanthropic endeavors and asked the question, why do we still have poverty? Why do we still have a lack of progress? Now, these are some very relevant and thought provoking questions that you're asking. How do we find out? what the actual answers are, what are the real answers? And a lot of this was driven by the fact that the people that we went to were were very polite in saying, oh, we really need to give the marginalized and the disenfranchised and indigenous peoples a seat at the table, or we need to give them a voice. And my reaction was, who the hell do you think we are? (laughs) Who are we to lord this over other people? They actually are the table. How dare we say, oh, we'll, we'll give them a seat at the table. So we went on a two-year mission working in marginalized community segments around the world to find out what the real problems were, to get it from the horse's mouth. Mm-hmm. And we did it by, we retained a, a company that were experts in developing focus groups. And we had them design focus groups that we could use in these communities. And we went to, we went to, didn't go to all seven continents. We went to five and the focus groups were set up where we would have a critical mass of the eldest people in a room and they were pro- average age. There was probably 80 and in the, in a different room at the same time, a critical mass of people deliberately in their early twenties, they were asked exactly the same questions as to what they felt the choke points to any progress were. 
The only difference in the two rooms was that the octogenarians were asked a second set of questions, which was to think back 50 or 60 years to when they were in their early twenties. And what were the problems then? And when they were done, everyone was brought together in the same room. We're waiting were municipal leaders, sort of philanthropic leaders, religious leaders, business leaders, if there were any in the vicinity, et cetera. And we would show the results of, of the focus group. And unfortunately in every instance, no matter where we were, the results were almost identical from community to community. The results from the octogenarians were very similar to that from the 20s. And the worst part of all is that the results from 60 years ago were the same as the results today, Mm -hmm. which only leads you to one conclusion that nothing's changed. And in fact, you'd make a very good argument that it's worse. Now that caused a riot amongst the lead, you know, religious leaders, community leaders who admittedly have been working very hard to, to, to see if they could affect progress, but nothing was happening. So we had to say, why, why is nothing happening? And what we discovered were a number of different things. Number one, most initiatives are focused on the effects, not the cause. Hunger is an effect, lack of access to transportation, lack of access to appropriate healthcare, education, they're all effects, right? The root cause of all those things is lack of economic vibrancy. Go to any community in the world where there's a high velocity of capital, high economic vibrancy. You don't find any of that. So when we took a deep dive into who's actually working on fixing the economic vibrancy problem and increasing the economic vibrancy, the answer was not many, if any. <laughs> so we realized that we needed to, to design a new community-centric economic model, which was based upon inclusive innovation. So everyone in the community could participate. When you do this work, as by the way, as an aside, you find that the people who face the problems actually have the solutions. If we would just trust them to bring them forward and build their businesses. So that's what we did. We went out, we built this model, and then we were blessed enough to be able to test it, which we've done and prove beyond any reasonable doubt that it works, mm-hmm. which we had done, I think by July of 2019. So as we started to scale it across the world, we got hit in the face by a pandemic like everybody else, but it even worked through the pandemic, which was great. So that's the story. Now, those are the catalysts that got me to where I am. What the work we do is called impact economics. And we certify people in impact economics because it has to be done in place. Mm -hmm. So they go back to their own communities and they build their own for-profit company. That way, the revenues that they they generate remain in their community, well, 95% of them do. And they become part of a global network of passion and purpose, people that can share best practices, et cetera, et cetera. So it's been a long journey. I do smile when people say, oh, wow, you just come up with this idea. Like, no, it's really been 30 years in the making. And so really that's my story. Oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So I'm picking up a few threads and again, I can ask you a few pointed questions there. Yeah. So one thing which, which I've seen is that you have a vision or you have and an idea of a future or, or the way business mm-hmm. is role. And then you have continuously done one thing after the another. Mm-hmm. 
to shift that. And this mm -hmm. would be moving to the U.S., starting a company, starting something new, mm -hmm. building a programs together, building platforms together. Mm -hmm. A question which I have is, how do you deal with the challenges which that bring along for your personal leadership? And, and how do you handle the pressure and the overwhelm which comes along with that? That's a great, that's a great question. I, I don't, pressure, I don't feel, mm -hmm. period, end of the story. It's just something I'm not accustomed to. If it's there, I don't feel it. And I think that is because I have such a deep rooted belief in that what I'm doing is correct. Now that, that doesn't mean that I don't listen to other people. I do. So the pressure is not an uh, issue for me. The criticisms, we're all human beings, but again, to be an impact entrepreneur, which I guess is what I am, you absolutely have to have a passion in your heart for what you're doing, because you are going to get criticized, especially when you're taking on an established industry. And again, I, I, I want to be totally clear. I am not saying for one minute that the not-for-profit industry needs to be blown up. I think 50% of those not-for-profits need to be supported. And just imagine if you took the 50% of money that gets donated to the ones that do nothing and actually redirected it to the ones that do something, think of the impact that would have. So I'm a big fan of that. And I am not saying the change maker space needs to be blown up. There are wonderful people doing wonderful uh, things. People don't want to take other people's in initiatives, even if they work and scale them in their own communities because they want to do it themselves. And, and that's when you go around the world, as I've done a lot, and you sit in these meetings, these change maker focus meetings, that's why I use the term mentally masturbate, because that's what people are doing. They go around in circles. Now it is fun. Don't get me wrong. And it's intellectually stimulating to have some of these conversations, but somewhere along the line, someone has to put a stake in the ground and say, I'm going to do this, or we are going to do that. But they don't, but they, they like talking about it. that crowd want to criticize me, knock yourself out because it doesn't matter because there's work to be done. And I am more focused on doing the work. I'm focused on working with young people. And frankly, if you don't want to play a part in it, that's fine. But actually go do something else instead of just sitting around complaining. What allows you to go out in the world with that posture of, I see that you're criticizing me or you have a different point of view, but it doesn't bother. It doesn't mm -hmm. hurt me. And then this is what I propose and then do something about it. So God rest her soul, my mother. <clears throat> and this is a great example. So recently I was, I was, well, given an award for creating a legacy, this impact economics, some people see it as a legacy and they gave me the award, which is very nice. But I said, this award doesn't belong to me. It belongs to my mother. So why did I say that? Ever since I was a young child, my mother taught me to color outside the lines. Do not cover inside the lines because then you're part of the establishment. Color outside the lines. Be brave, go create something, literally create the future you'd like to see. And I've never had to think outside the box because I was never put in a box mm. in the first place. And that's because of my mother. So if anyone deserves that, that award, it's her, not me, because that's the way I was taught. 
have the courage of your convictions, but you better be prepared to actually do the work right now. 30 years, as I said, I gave you the timeline, right? $9 million of investment. This is, this isn't something that sprang up overnight. We went down blind alleys like everybody else. And you get beaten up, you dust yourself off, you come out and you, you start again. And then you go down another blind alley. And what you learn from that is when you're dealing with people who have not been blessed to have the kind of education that some of us have had, and they haven't been given a quality of opportunity, not outcome, opportunity. They haven't even had the chance to go down the blind alleys. So what we can all do is we can actually stand guard at the entrance to those blind alleys, preventing them from going down there and wasting the time and resources that we all did and make their journey just that little bit easier than ours was. And I think that, that you need to be able to think outside the box or if you were put in a box or color upside the lines in order to have that mentality. Otherwise you just become institutionalized again. You are not going to change it if you are inside a box and you are too afraid to color outside the lines. Thank you for sharing that powerful story about your mother. How that frame of coloring outside the lines allows you to move forward. And, and I can sense a huge sense of empathy as well in the way it, it's not like my way. And then everybody, no. it's, it's like, I, I'll mm -hmm. take you along and I listen to you mm -hmm. and, and I am outside the box, but that doesn't make anybody wrong. I, I, I can sense that. Yes. Thank you for sharing on. I think there are wonderful insights from what you have shared. Any lasting thoughts or any advice would you like to give for change makers or leaders? There's nothing wrong about thinking. It's a really good thing. But at the end of the day, if you don't actually do something, it's a complete waste of time. People have to realize that just talking about it doesn't get it done. And that modern business leaders are the most important people in the sustainable future room until, by the way, because they're tied with the people that face the problems, because the people that face the problems have the solutions. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. For You're welcome. Yeah. I think one big takeaway which I'm taking, the bias towards action and actually doing things, moving mm -hmm. away from dialogue mm -hmm. and understanding the value of it, but then putting it into action and then learning and then continuing that cycle. And that produces real change. Yeah. Thank you. I'm delighted to be able to have this conversation with you today, Stuart. Very welcome. Uh, and thank you for your time. Thank you for your generosity and sharing everything about your life and your journey. That's it for this episode of Choosing Leadership with Sumit Gupta. I choose leadership every time I record this podcast and I invite you to do the same. I invite you to design a life of joy, meaning, pride and satisfaction, not just for yourself, but also for those around you. This is what I do most naturally, to lovingly and gently provoke you, to help you see your own light, to help you see what you are already capable of. I say what might be uncomfortable for me to say or for you to hear, to show you that all our dreams which have been on hold are within our grasp. If you like the sound of it, do not forget to leave a rating. I invite you to subscribe to my newsletter at deployyourself.com slash newsletter.
You can also reach out on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook to share any other comment or feedback. I want to thank everyone who contributed to making this show a reality. And thank you for listening. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved and you matter. This is Sumit. Until next time, keep choosing leadership.